Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. As you're turning there, um, maybe you can relate to this. Um, recently, I've found myself um, on the uh, wrong side of a relationship with someone. Uh, someone that in the past, um, we were friends. And, um, and then for whatever reason, things have kind of devolved. There's been a lack of trust and there's this growing tension. And I would say I'm, I feel like I'm being perceived as an enemy of this person. Um, and I, I just wonder if you've ever had that sort of relationship, a disagreement where uh, someone you trusted has now, is now someone you don't trust um, and they don't trust you. And you could even say that they've become like an enemy to you. Um, I, I wonder who your enemies are, because we all have enemies. It could be um, a coworker, it could be a neighbor, um, it could be someone in your family, it could be the opposing um, rec league soccer coach. Um, you know, sometimes the people that we love the most become our deepest enemies. And then sometimes the people we love the most become just sort of temporary enemies, right? Like sibling rivalries or spats or your spouse mistreats you or your aunt betrays you or something like that and um, and you just feel like enemies for a season. Um, and we can have all sorts of different types of enemies, right? Um, enemies that are jealous of us and they seem to just be angry with us for some reason because of something we have they don't. They might become an enemy uh, because they can't stand what we stand for, or maybe they view us as competition, or uh, in some cases, people see us as weak and they prey upon us. Uh, some think that we're guilty and evil, and so they oppose us, and some see us standing in their way, and so they want to destroy us. Some are just blatantly self-righteous and see us as wicked. Um, but we all have enemies. In fact, the Psalms, the prayer book of Scripture, the prayer book of God's people, assumes that we have enemies. I mean, if you read the Psalms, it's filled with petitions to God about the enemies that we have and what they are doing to us and what we want God to do to rescue us from them and to restore us in some way. And Jesus assumes this very thing as well in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So, how do we deal with and how do we overcome our enemies? What's common for us, what's natural for us, is to retaliate, to exact revenge, right? That is a universal human experience. Um, it, that's just, not, all of us do that, right? Whether it's physically or in some social way, whatever, we retaliate. It is natural to seek revenge or to pay people back, right? I was talking in, as we were reading through this in our home group, we were just noting that um, I don't know almost anyone who teaches their child to retaliate, but they know how to do it, right? It's, it's instinctual, it's uh, natural. You do not have to teach a child to fight back, to punish those who offend them or bother them in some way. What is unnatural is forgiveness. It's, it's unnatural and it is uncommon. So let me um, read our text today. With that in mind, this is uh, Sermon on the Mount, again, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Jesus speaks here. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we, we want to be like you. We want to, uh, as your children, reflect who you are. And yet this is incredibly difficult. And so we pray that um, through the power of Jesus and by your spirit working in us through your word, um, we would become people who forgive and who love our enemies um, in, in all the difficult ways um, that, that we are called to do that. So be at work in our presence now uh, for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen. So um, we've been talking about discipleship and following Jesus, and he continues to press us with um, a difficult path, but a path that is easy, that lifts burdens off of us and leads us into life and freedom. And so uh, as we think about what it means to be a kingdom community, and Jesus is just correcting these distortions of the law that had developed in his time and that are even present today, as he's gone through different of the Ten Commandments and then corrected you know, how people had misunderstood them, he uh, gets here to some of the general teachings of the Old Testament and begins to, again, show us what these really are about and what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. So we're going to talk about love today. And um, to do that, we're going to look at retaliation, revolution, and renovation. So first, let's talk about retaliation. And I want to look at verses 38 and 43 um, first. And so uh, let me just read those again. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then down a few verses, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus is noting what the Old Testament teaches and the ways that people have come to understand what that teaches. And he begins to correct these distortions of the law. The first thing that he corrects is the principle of civil justice in Israel. This eye for an eye, this is a biblical command. It is a principle um, that was in the, the background of the whole Israelite legal system. It's talked about in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. This is a repeated maxim. It was the uh, idea that the punishment for a crime should match the crime. Uh, just because you do something bad doesn't mean you should... Um, get the worst possible punishment. It was meant to limit the um, punishments that could be exacted on people. This is especially important in a tribal society where often family members would get involved in punishing the wrongdoer. 
uh, of someone who's hurt their family member. And so God gave this law, an eye for an eye, as a way of limiting revenge and cycles of violence. And yet in Jesus's day, the Pharisees had come to take this principle and um, use it as a, as a justification for retaliation. They were saying, because you've done this to me, I get to do this back to you. So that's what Jesus is correcting. Um, and secondly, he, um, he corrects a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, the Israelites were commanded to love their neighbors. It says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what had happened in Jesus's day is that that good command was narrowed. The, the language of your own people and neighbor was taken in a narrow way to be a command that you only had to love your own people. You only have to love your, your immediate neighbors, but you were allowed to hate the outsider, your enemy. And so Jesus corrects these distortions that justified retaliation and vengeance and revenge. And, um, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that this needed to be corrected. Because, as I said earlier, revenge, paying people back, is natural. It's natural to us. Children don't have to be taught not to hit back, right? Um, hating our enemies is a natural thing. Wanting to get payback is a natural thing for us. I'd wager there has never been a culture in the history of the world in which payback was not a customary way of relating to those who had hurt us. Um, uh, it's natural for us to wound people when they wound us, right? And some of us do that by, um, by running away and cutting off that relationship. If someone's hurt us, we withdraw. And so we passively get payback by cutting off any way back into the relationship with us. And others, we try to preserve ourselves by coming back at people with as much force as they came to us, right? Um, relationally, we do this in us of wrongdoing. We want to condemn them right? We, we're always working to kind of put ourselves above other people, to put them under us. Um, any injury must be rectified and inflicted back on them. That is natural for us. Forgiveness is completely alien and unnatural, and it is often avoided and even seen as toxic in our culture today. So retaliation is natural. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is having to correct this, but we need to remember that retaliation, despite the fact that it's universally practiced, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? Um, payback, retaliation, revenge, unforgiveness, all of those things lead to death. Um, there's a quote, I, people ascribe it to Gandhi. I don't know if he was actually the one who said it, but um, this, this saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? Payback always escalates, doesn't it? When, when someone hurts us and we hurt them back, we aren't good at objectively calibrating the injury done to us. And, and because we think highly of ourselves, we always see what they've done to us as much greater than maybe everybody else sees it. And so what we pay back to people ends up being an escalation of some sort. And that leads, of course, to them responding in turn. And you get these cycles of revenge and cycles of violence, which, of course, leads to death. That's the, that's the um, way things typically go. And it is completely in, ineffective at actually resolving the initial Hard. So it's uh, it's natural, but it's ineffective. But we also need to see just how fundamentally destructive retaliation and payback actually is. It's destructive to us individually and to the world community. Unforgiveness and payback destroys us individually. 
When we engage in retribution, when we refuse to forgive, it damages us as much as that other person, and um, it shapes us in deeply distorted ways. Um, recently, a friend shared with me that she forgave someone who hurt her deeply years ago. And she said um, it was like this weight was just lifted off of her. This hurt had shaped her for so many years that it had come to the point that she wasn't even sure who she was without this animosity toward the one that hurt her. And in fact, everything she'd experienced since then in many ways had been shaped scary because it's so shaped her identity for so long. That's how unforgiveness works. That's how this um, punishing others who have hurt us works. It shapes us. It makes us deeply bitter people who are reactive in our lives because that, that thing looms so large over us that everything else we experience is, um, is, is engaged with that in our background. Uh, we build relational walls that um, limit our ability to grow close and to have trust with other people. Um, there's another famous saying, hurting people hurt people, right? When, when we have deep wounds that aren't getting healed, that that very often manifests in us hurting other people. And we aren't responsible for the harms that people do to us, but we are responsible for what we do with that hurt, with that wound. And so when we pay people back, it ends up shaping us in distorted ways and killing us. But it also shapes the world. Unforgiveness and payback destroys the world. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted and it affects the whole community right? When, when a whole community embraces revenge and payback, um, cutoff of relationship becomes systemic. People uh, become so accustomed to cutting others off who have hurt us and instead of moving toward them and trying to reconcile and forgive that fragmentation develops throughout communities. And that, of course, leads to increasing distrust. It's very much the situation we are in in our culture today. We, of course, see this in things like gang violence, where um, revenge for saving face or, or defending one's honor leads to um, increased violence. We see this in tribal warfare. We see this even in mass shootings. Um, and interpersonal vendettas, all of these things ripple out and have broader effects on the community. So payback is natural. It is common, but it is ineffective and it is incredibly destructive. And so the Pharisees, like all of us, use God's law to justify payback. And Jesus is inviting us to live. He's inviting us into a new way, the way of his kingdom, that is better and in fact is revolutionary. And so that's the second thing I want us to see today, this revolutionary teaching of Jesus. So let's go back to these verses, uh, look at verses 38 through 42. And here what we see Jesus teaching us is that we are not to resist with evil. We are not to resist evil done to us with evil. In fact, we are to be willing to suffer wrong and loss. Now, read what he says in verse 39. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, Jesus cannot be saying, don't resist evil at all. And we know that because his very life was filled with resisting evil. And we know in many other places we should resist evil. What Jesus is getting at here is the way that we resist evil. He's saying um, that we are not to fight back or oppose in kind. In fact, the idea that the word resist here probably can also be translated something like do not fight back or do not oppose in kind. That's what Jesus is getting at. And he gives four examples to demonstrate this. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs or demands from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he gives four examples. First, what do we do when we're insulted? That's, that's the slap that he's referring to here. It's, a, it's probably a, a backhanded slap that hits someone on the right of the cheek, or perhaps it's a left-handed slap, an open-handed slap. Uh, if it's done with the left hand, that's a degrading thing because the left was associated with filth in a culture that didn't have plumbing. Uh, if it was a backhanded slap, it was treating someone like a slave. This is an insult. And Jesus says, if someone insults you, you offer them the other cheek. You don't insult back. You expose what they're doing and you, you ask them essentially, are you going to continue with this sort of wicked, evil behavior? Other, uh, the second example he gives is about someone suing us or trying to exhort, uh, extort from us. In a, in a Roman-occupied Israel, uh, the Romans could requisition things from people when they said they had need, but the law prevented them from taking someone's tunic. Um, and so Jesus is saying, if someone sues you and takes something, this is oppression. This tunic is oppression because you, they're not supposed to be able to take this from you. If they do that, offer them even um, your inner cloak as well. Essentially stand almost naked before them, exposing what they are doing to you, to the world. The third example he gives is, is at least a form of inconvenience, but there's definitely a hint of shame here. Roman soldiers could requisition someone to carry their things for them for up to a mile. And he says, go a second mile and highlight to them your willingness to be, um, to, to be shamed. Because they did that to remind Israel that they were in subjugation to them. He says, offer to go a second mile, expose them for what they're doing. The fourth example he gives is a little different than the others. And it's, it's a challenge of the, the language here is uh, translated in the ESV is, if anyone begs from you, I think the language is stronger than that. It's more like demands from you. But there's certainly this background here uh, in this example of not necessarily the Romans, but the Israelite nation and God's command to, that there would be no poor among Israel, that all the poor in Israel should be cared for and provided for. And this meant Israelites were to live in such a way that when there were people in their midst who had need of, among their nation, they were to help them and not expect uh, necessarily repayment, and definitely not to exact interest on a loan to someone. And so what he's saying here is you have to be willing, when people make these demands of you financially, you have to be willing in one sense to suffer a loss, especially when that comes internally from the church. Now, I want to just quickly make a note. This is not a blanket command to give to anybody who asks money of you in all times, all right? And we know that from the larger teaching of Scripture, how foolish and unwise that would be and how quickly we would all be out of money if we lived according to this practice. But what Jesus is saying is that there, there's a sense in which we ought to live willing to take a loss and be accepted, uh, accepting of that. Now, three of the four of these examples that Jesus gives, there's an underlying uh, um, uh, element of shame that goes along with all of this. Uh, when we're slapped or, or sued and, and almost stripped naked or forced to go the extra mile and reminded of subjugation, Jesus is saying um, you're to live in such a way that you actually embrace a certain level of shame in order to expose but also invite the person mistreating you into a new way. So even though Jesus is not writing new laws, he is pointing us to the type of people that we must become in his kingdom. And it is a revolutionary ethic that he's calling now, the second uh, section of text I want to look at in verses 44 and following um, gets really to the heart of the matter. And here what Jesus is teaching is that we are to love everyone. We're to love all people, to seek the good of all people, even our enemies. 
He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I honestly don't know which one is more difficult. Is it harder to love our enemies, meaning to act for their good, good, or is it harder to pray for them, to go into the presence of God and to request their good? I'm not sure which one is more difficult. They are both incredibly challenging. But he gives us two reasons why we are to do this. The first is that we are to imitate our Father in heaven. He says, you should do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying God loves even his enemies. He gives good things. He blesses even those who are unjust, even those who are wicked. So he says, you need to imitate your father and be good, show goodness to those who are your enemies. But then he also says, um, we do this in order to be distinct. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And he goes on to basically say, doesn't everyone do this? Everyone is nice. Everyone is kind. Everyone is loving. Everyone seeks the good of people who love them. That's not remarkable. There, that's not some sort of sign that you know God, right? Um, it's strategic. Of course, you're going to be good to those people because they're good to you. Jesus is calling for something revolutionary, which is to love all people, even those who are our enemies. So we're to resist evil with good. We're to seek the good of even our enemies. We're to be willing to be wrong, to suffer loss, to bear some shame, to not harm other people in return. Now, friends, this is absolutely unique in the history of the entire world. This goes against everything that is natural to us as humans. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, the very beginning of history, and you see this guy Lamech who is boasting. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, right? There's that escalation. This is way back at the beginning of human history. All cultures have been shaped by this ethic of revenge. Only the cultures that have been shaped by Christianity affirm the revolutionary and radical call to love your enemies. Even Gandhi, right? This father of nonviolence, he was borrowing from Christianity, right? He was resisting evil with good, and he's borrowing from Christian um, teaching when he says that. Uh, this is still revolutionary in parts of the world where Christianity has not yet reached. I remember I think we were going through that Operation World book at one point and praying for different nations um, in church. And I remember reading about, I can't remember which nation it is now, but they had um, some tribes that had been feuding for generations, um, murdering each other. And it was just this endless cycle of payback. And when the gospel came to those tribes and people began to teach about forgiving enemies and how Christ died for us, um, it, it didn't just um, slightly alter their culture. It ra radically changed their whole culture. Everything in their um, tribal communities was based on this idea of, of vengeance and retaliation. This is radical stuff. What makes it even harder is what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, therefore, uh, you must be perfect as your heavenly father as perfect. Now, that word perfect there can also be something like maturity or completion. He's, he's sort of saying, this is what all of the law is aimed at. This is what maturity uh, of understanding God's word is embodied in. It's this ethic of, of love. Now, some read this and they're troubled by it. You know, I got to be perfect. I got to be mature as God is mature. What, is, what does that must mean? And we talked about this in my home group recently. And um, I was trying to explain that sometimes our our doctrine of justification gets in the way of understanding what Jesus is getting. I, you know, I'm not in any way downplaying justification, that the idea that we are justified before God, we're made right with God 
through faith where God gives us the righteousness of Christ as a gift of grace, and we are in right standing with him. That's fundamental to the Christian life. And, and when someone hears the word must here, they're thinking, oh no, does that, does this, if I don't do this, do this, does that threaten my justification? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's using the language of family, right? Um, so I tell my kids, you must obey your mother. You must obey your mother. This is not an option. This is not a choice. This is who you are. You're, um, you are a child and you have to obey what she says. Now, um, if they say to me, well, what happens if I don't? You know, the answer is not, well, then I'm kicking you out of the family, right? That's not the answer. Does that mean they, they don't have to obey their mother? No, it, they must. That's who, they're their children. That, that's their mother. They must obey. This is how they imitate their parents and live into who they are. And that is what Jesus is saying here. If you want to be like your heavenly father, you must grow into this maturity that involves loving all people, especially your enemies. Now, how do we do that? Now, we may realize this is what we're called to do. Uh, we may even realize that it is killing us not to do it, but it is incredibly hard to let go of the wounds that people have inflicted upon us. It is incredibly difficult to forgive people. Why? Why is that? What do we do with this? We hear this call. How can we actually live in the way that Jesus is calling us? And so the third thing I want us to see is that we need a renovation. We need a renovation. We have to be transformed and renewed in our very core of who we are. Our hearts have to be transformed. And not, not just talking about once when we become Christians, but continually we need a renewal of our hearts. And that, that happens as we learn to admit our own sins and to regularly see ourselves as having been forgiven by God a much greater debt than what has been done to us. And, um, and seeing ourselves as having been loved by God, even when we were enemies of God who came into the world to bear our guilt and shame. See, that is the whole message of Christianity, that God moved toward us while we were his enemies. Each one of us has insulted God. Each one of us has stolen what belongs to him. Each one of us has presumed upon the kindness of God, and that has made us enemies of God. Now, that word is very strong. And I know uh, sometimes when people hear that, that we're God, we've become God's enemies, people kind of balk at that. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not an enemy of God. Maybe I haven't really been paying a lot of attention to him, but I'm not an enemy of God. Well, um, think about if you made just this incredible masterpiece of art, and you gave it to um, people that you loved dearly. And then someone came along and out of just pure negligence and not paying attention to anyone but themselves, came in and just accidentally destroyed this piece of art and in the process hurt all the people that you love. How would you view that person as just a, oh, that's just a person who doesn't pay attention to me? No, we would see that person as someone who has become our enemy. They have they have gone against everything that we love and that we've created and that was meant to be a gift. And friends, each of us is that to God. We, are, we have become God's enemies apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And so God sent his son into the world and we persecuted him unto death. I mean, think of the, the passion of Jesus. He was insulted, mocked, stripped naked, and he gave his whole life to love his enemies in order to forgive us and to reward us, right? That is uh, at the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Even on the cross, he looks at his enemies and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We will never be able to resist with goodness. We will never be able to love our enemies unless we have new hearts that are being fueled by God's grace. Remembering that we have been forgiven a greater debt. Remembering that God will judge the world one day. He, anything done to you will be paid back either by Christ on the cross or when Jesus comes to judge and to set everything right. Only when we believe that, and that's changing our heart, will we be able to resist evil with good and to show forgiveness. And it has radical power when we do that, friends. I have seen it in my own life. When I um, forgave someone that hurt me many years ago, it radically changed our relationship, and now it is restored and healthy and beautiful and good. I've seen it in the stories that I've heard from you. I've seen it in individuals and families and communities and friends. It even happens in nations. If you don't believe me about that, stick around this community and listen to the stories that people tell. And you'll find that this work of loving our enemies and forgiving them and resisting evil with goodness, it has incredible power. So let me just give some, some counsel here on how to apply what we're hearing Jesus talk about today. And let me just tell you that um, you cannot do this stuff if you wait until you feel like it. Actions of forgiveness, actions of refusing to pay people back have to come before we feel like doing them. That doesn't mean you should neglect your heart. I just spent saying you need a new heart. You need to run to the gospel and remember what God has done for you in Jesus. Do, yes, do that. But don't think that that has to sort of make you feel a certain way before you begin to actually need to act this out. Act first and pray that God would change your heart. Do not pay people back. Learn to embrace shame when you are insulted. Learn to bear loss. It, it is not a good instinct to want to punch back all the time. Run to the gospel for resources. But also recognize that this stuff is complex. Forgiveness is incredibly complicated. Tim Keller in his book on forgiveness says, no one can live unless he or she learns when to forgive silently, when to bring the matter up, and how to forgive even if the other person is reluctant to admit his or her fault. Forgiveness is really complicated. We've talked about it quite a bit in this community over the past few years. And of course, there's a million circumstances that shape exactly how this should play out. Some forgiveness requires overlooking an offense and just ignoring it. Other forgiveness requires that we go to the person and name what they've done. Other forgiveness suggests we should avoid that person. Uh, maybe they are not safe to be around, but we still forgive them. Some forgiveness will be met with repentance. Some forgiveness is met with unrepentance. Some forgiveness is offered to people who uh, don't repent first. They, they, they're not even thinking about you and you go to them. Some forgiveness will see a restored relationship. Some forgiveness might result in, uh, in, in boundaries forever after that, right? It's complicated. But what is not complicated is that we are called to not pay people back for what they have done for us and to bless them even if they have become our enemy. Another thing we need to remember is that we've got to commit to forgiving even when we don't feel like it. Very often, as I said earlier, very often feelings follow after we have shown forgiveness rather than preceding that action. And finally, we need to remember that forgiveness is not a one-time thing. You may uh, have this great experience where you go and you offer forgiveness and it's a huge weight off of you and you feel freed up and then a week later you see them or they do this slight thing that reminds you of it and suddenly 
all that anger rushes back and the wound is fresh again. And you have to remember that forgiveness is a continual act of refusing to pay people back for what they've done for us. It, it, it's going to uh, often take a long time for some of the wounds that we've experienced. But because Jesus has loved us and laid his life down for us while we were enemies of God, we must forgive and we must love our enemies. And I want to warn you that if this is something that you resist or reject or you have no interest in doing, um, this is not a good sign for you. Uh, I would say that the willingness and the desire to work to forgive people is the single greatest marker of a changed heart. Maybe matched only by our ability to repent of our own sins. They go hand in hand. The religious person, friends, the, the moralist, the person who's very concerned about doing the right thing all the time um, and sees themselves as sort of earning God's you know, uh, favor in life. They can obey a lot of God's commands, at least externally, but not this one. Pride prevents it. Pride does not allow the religious moralistic person to love enemies and to refuse to retaliate. Pride will not allow us to show grace to our enemies. And so I encourage you to examine yourself. If you constantly punch back, if you celebrate that, if you love to repay people, if you um, have no interest in showing forgiveness, then you need to beware that you have not yet understood God's grace to you and Christ, and you have not received that and rest wholly on his grace. But if you fight to forgive, if that's, a, I mean, it's a struggle, it's always a struggle, but if you fight to forgive and refuse to pay people back, then take heart, because that is a sign of something very unnatural. It is the sign of the work of the Spirit in your life. And friends, let me say this in closing. If we begin to embody this as a church, I believe this is the single greatest witness that we can have in a hostile culture. Peacemaking, not retaliating, is critical to our witness in this day and time. Nothing demonstrates our confidence and our hope in the resurrection like refusing to pay people back and leaving justice to the hands of God and loving people who have sinned against us. Nothing shows our hope. Nothing speaks about what we believe about the power of God in Christ than being willing to be wronged and shamed and refusing to pay people back. Nothing, friends, exposes evil for what it is like not returning evil with evil. And we're going to have to learn to do this if we're going to move into a culture that's increasingly hostile to what we believe about all sorts of things. So let's pray that God would make us this sort of people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we go to the table, friends, um, this table is where Jesus nourishes us with his death. He gave his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's go to this table in faith, remembering that we have been forgiven much and trusting that God will renew us by his spirit to be people who can show forgiveness to others. Let's pray.